what your country can do for you. There's a last time I've got to be in the lead. The Giants have the Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning into episode 48 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. What? Another trumpet player we haven't heard from yet? What? More Dixieland from my dad's collection? Well, of course. And this is just one of four albums from this trumpet master in my dad's collection. So get ready to take a trip back to New Orleans for some happy music in volume 48, Al Hurt, Swingin' Dixie. Thank you. 
there's a song you've heard from a couple of other Dixieland masters on Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. High Society, written by Porter Steele. All right, why this album? Well, I've been a big fan of Al Hertz since I found the single of his, Fancy Pants, in my dad's collection in the basement sometime in my youth. Something about Hertz's tone. It's just clear as a bell when it almost blats out the end of the horn. He's very precise in his playing, even in his solos. And since we will eventually need to get to four of his albums at some point, I thought I'd better get him introduced. And no, he is not the last of the trumpet players in my dad's collection that I have yet to introduce you to. Next up, a tune Jerry Van Dyke performed in a sleepwalking role on the Dick Van Dyke Show. Check it out. The Sleeping Brother, Season 1, Episode 27. But that's not what you're going to hear now.
Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey, with words and music written by Huey Cannon, arranged by Al Hurt and Sidney Fry. All right, let me introduce you to the album I chose for this episode, Al Hurt, Swingin' Dixie Volume 3. It's on the Audio Fidelity label AFLP 1926. It's a vinyl LP album mono format. It was released in 1960. Its genre is jazz and its style is Dixieland. Now I'm going to read just a couple of paragraphs of the liner notes from the back cover because they are quite extensive. As far as music was concerned, New Orleans was making history when the rest of the country was being weaned. Long before the end of the 19th century, jazz was pulsating in and around the Crescent City. The sounds were not those heard in drawing rooms in the Garden District of Town or along Boston's Beacon Street, nor did they have any suggestion of French or Italian operas people came to hear in New York City's Castle Garden. The sounds reflected something of the tunes workers sang in the tobacco and cotton fields, of the African voodoo rhythms that Negroes beat out in the city's Congo Square, of the laments of plantation laborers and spirituals. New Orleans music, as it was called, took something from each source, and jazzmen pounded it out day and night. They played at funerals, fairs, meetings, conventions, parties, cabarets, picnics, saloons, and in brothels, wherever and whenever the spirit moved them. Few of them could read music, but that didn't stop them. They tackled every piece in their own manner, but somehow it always came out right. The story goes that someone once suggested to a jazz band that he learn how to read music. What for, he replied. What would I do when the lights go out? Quite a few explanations have been suggested about the origin of the term Dixieland. One alleges that the word comes from Dixie's land, referring to that portion of the country south of the Mason and Dixon line. Another traces the term to the Dix, a piece of paper money issued in New Orleans somewhere towards the end of the 19th century. Still another holds it is merely a generic term referring to the Southland as a whole. As applied to music, Dixieland at first was a geographical rather than a technical word. Many types of jazz during the period from around 1900 to 1910, including the quadrille, blues, ragtime, and others, came under the heading of New Orleans jazz. But by the time the style known as Dixieland had emerged, it had characteristics separate and apart from the other types of jazz. It has been described as music in which African elements dominate a combination of various strains, which in turn are dominated by European elements. Finally, where Negro musicians once formed the majority of jazzmen who played New Orleans music, white musicians starting in the Crescent City took up the thread and carried it to the east and west coast of the nation as well as to the Midwest. And that's one of the reasons we really enjoyed this joyous music around my parents' house so much. All right, let's talk about the Discogs.com value. The lowest is in at $1.50, the highest in at $10, and the median at $9.99, which kind of means most of them are valued at $10. eBay had several in the $10 range. Amazon had several for $5.45, and Etsy had one for $22.50. Now, my dad's record itself is in fair condition. It's not too hissy. The cover is only fair to poor condition. It has some stress along the seams with tiny tears at the entrance, you know, where the slot is. It's got one of those green magic marker streaks on it, plus this one has a price in pencil on the back cover uh, that says... Uh, four ninety-five, but I'll value my dad's dad's record at only seventy-five cents. And uh, not sure how you can dance 
only taking one step. Dixieland One Step, written by Nick LaRocca. All right, time now to learn about the artist for this episode, and most of this is from the Los Angeles Times obituary for him. Al Hurt, the legendary Dixieland trumpeter with a giant sound, was born in New Orleans on November 7, 1922, and died in New Orleans on April 27, 1999, at the age of 76. 
In a career that ranged over 50 years, the six foot six, 300 pound Hurt recorded more than 50 albums, four of which went gold and one of which went platinum. He was nominated for 21 Grammy Awards and won Best Non-Jazz Instrumental in 1964 for Java. In his heyday, the 1960s, Hurt was a frequent guest on television variety programs hosted by the likes of Dinah Shore and Andy Williams. In 1965, he hosted a summer replacement series fanfare for Jackie Gleason. In 1967, Hurt headlined the halftime show at Pro Football's first Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers and Kansas City Chiefs playing at the Coliseum in Los Angeles. It was the first of five Super Bowl appearances for the entertainer. He was one of the best trumpet players all around the world, clarinetist Pete Fountain, a longtime friend who played with Hurt on and off for more than 50 years, told the Associated Press he had everything, technique, stamina, and education. The trumpeter was born Alois Maxwell Hurt in the Crescent City. His father, also named Alois, was a policeman who gave his son his first trumpet, purchased at a pawn shop when the boy was just six. And as the story goes, Hurt's second-hand instrument had a faulty mouthpiece, and that flaw forced him to develop his wind power, which later left crowds and fellow trumpeters in awe. As a youth, Hurt played in the police department junior band and studied extensively with many teachers. In 1940, he left New Orleans to study classical music at the Cincinnati Conservatory. After World War II erupted, Hurt joined the Army in 1942, spending much of his tour of duty playing with the 82nd Army Air Force Band and developing his style. His principal influences were stars of the era Harry James and Roy Eldridge. At war's end, the trumpeter toured with big bands led by Jimmy and Tommy Dorsey and Ray McKinley. Hurt got a break in 1949 when he won the Philip Morris Talent Contest and then joined the Horace Height Orchestra for a tour of the United States and Europe, mainly playing lead trumpet. He went home to New Orleans as often as possible throughout his career. Describing himself as a homebody, he disliked touring and wanted to be in New Orleans with his wife and eight children. He spent eight years, most of the 1950s, on staff at a New Orleans radio station playing mainly lead trumpet. He also put his classical training to use performing with the New Orleans Symphony Orchestra. He then formed a combo with Fountain, and they went to work playing at Dan Levy's Pier 600 Club performing Dixieland music. It was as a Dixieland performer that Hurt first gained wide public attention. With the help of a series of RCA albums from which he gained most of his financial success, he became a national figure playing in Las Vegas and New York's Basin Street East and guesting on TV variety programs. In the 1960s, Hurt moved on from Dixieland to produce hit commercial albums like Honey and the Horn, Cotton Candy, and Sugar Lips, which brought him Grammy nominations and some scorn from the jazz mainstream. Now, we'll save more of his life story for a, another Al Hurt episode, but I did want to finish with this. Hurt played with some of the greats of jazz in New Orleans. He once related a story to jazz critic Leonard Feather of the time he gave a jazz trumpet to the son of his piano player. The boy would go down to the club in the daytime and would start banging around on the piano, Hurt said. I finally said, hey, let's get that kid away from here. Give him a trumpet. The piano player was Ellis Marsalis, the son, Winton. Yes, Winton Marsalis. And what a connection that man has to the jazz world. Loved his interview segments in Ken Burns' nine-part documentary, Jazz. If you haven't seen that, check it out. All right, and now the first of two tunes that mention flowing water. 
kayak so i always try to have my paddle but there is up a lazy river written by hoagie carmichael and sydney Arodin. time now for this episode's interesting side note and it has to do with the next song that's coming up so how did sweet georgia brown become the harlem globetrotters theme song well this ended up being an unanswered question on a subreddit from seven years ago, and I didn't find much other than what I'm about to read to you. Sweet Georgia Brown is famous as the theme song of the Harlem Globetrotters basketball team who officially adopted it in 1952. They use it for their magic circles when the players stand in a circle and pass around the ball, displaying their impressive techniques and dexterity. The song was written in the 1920s by Mikhail Pincard and Ken Casey. It was popularized by the big band leader Benny uh, Ben Burney in the 1920s, and he was given a co-writer credit for recording it. Reportedly, Ben Burney came up with the concept for the song's lyrics, although he is not the credited lyricist after meeting Dr. George Thaddeus Brown in New York City. Dr. Brown, a longtime member of the Georgia State House of Representatives, told Bernie about his daughter, Georgia Brown, and how subsequent to the baby girl's birth on August 11, 1911, the Georgia General Assembly had issued a declaration that she was to be named Georgia after the state. This anecdote would be directly referenced by the song's lyrics, Georgia claimed her, Georgia named her. The tune was first recorded on March 19, 1925 by band leader Ben Burney, resulting in a five-week stretch at number one for Ben Burney and his Hotel Roosevelt Orchestra. Now, of course, the most famous version, with whistling and bone cracking, was a 1949 instrumental recorded by Brother Bones and His Shadows. This is the version used by the Harlem Globetrotters. Now, let's hear Al's version of this classic tune.
There is Sweet Georgia Brown, written by Ben Burney, Kenneth Casey, and Mikhail Pincard. And yes, my father brought my brothers and me to a Harlem Globetrotters game back in the 1970s at the Richfield Coliseum. Now, I'm pretty sure my sister was too young to go with us at that point. And yes, I took my daughter to a Globetrotters game just a few years ago at Quicken Loans Arena, now Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse or something like that. I'm, I'm so glad I was able to share that experience with her. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Hearing the trumpet of Al Hurt brings back fond memories of me going through my dad's 45s in the basements. I remember coming across Fancy Pants, Alley Cat, Java, popping each one on that piece of junk turntable that barely kept up to speed, especially at 45 RPM. But those songs were the pop tunes he was accused of abandoning Dixieland music for. It doesn't matter to me. You always know when it's Al Hurt playing. I also didn't know that he was nicknamed Round Mound of Sound, a moniker a fellow DJ hung on me many, many years ago. And now a quick connection to this last tune. As previously mentioned, I went to Riverside High School. Not exactly built on the side of the banks of a river, but along a road called Riverside Drive. Now that road does go along a portion of the Grand River, but uh, for only about a half mile of its entire three miles distance, uh, which begins and ends at the same road. Okay, I digress. During my entire tenure at the Beaver Marching Band, we were forced to play down by the riverside as the obvious musical connection. Hurt doesn't quite make it sound like a bunch of teenagers in the mid-1970s playing a tune for the thousandth time after not ever wanting to play it again.
Down by the Riverside, also known as Ain't Gonna Study War No More and Gonna Lay Down My Burden, is an African-American spiritual. Its roots date back to before the American Civil War, though it was first published in 1918 in Plantation Melodies, a collection of modern, popular, and old-time Negro songs of the Southland. And this version was arranged by Al Hurt and Sidney Fry. And there you have selections from another great trumpet player in my dad's collection. So thanks for tuning into Volume 48, Al Hurt Swinging Dixie, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 49, Birth of the Blues, Part 1. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>